Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic I- What was that? Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am one of your co-hosts, Martha Sullivan, uh, eternal Pokemon master and photographer. And I am here, as always, with my co-host. I am Pete Romberg, and uh, for reasons I cannot explain, I am very tired. Uh, Um, And it's not because I don't want to explain it, it's because I literally, I have no idea why I'm so tired. uh, I have a guess. I'm going to go ahead and guess that it's because we are 15 months into a pandemic and have all been undergoing varying degrees of low-grade trauma for the the past year or so. I'll tell you what, that's certainly not helping matters. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm tired all the time, too. I think it's depression. <laughs> I mean, I also slept horribly two nights ago, so it might just be that that is catching up with me. And then also it's like, that. well, why did you sleep horribly? I don't know. No good reason. Possibly <laughs> the 15 month long pandemic we're all going through. Who knows? Yeah, yeah no. Uh, charming banter aside, uh, <laughs> we are here, as always, to dissect and discuss various forms of media on a theme. Uh, tonight we will be discussing real life uh real life material inserted into fictionalized narratives uh spe- specifically focusing on uh two films from the last year Judas and the Black Messiah and The Trial of the Chicago 7 before we get started however we are going to discuss what is stuck in our heads this week uh which i have spoiled for myself just a little bit but because (laughs) i already gave you a teaser as to what's going on in my head i'm gonna make pete go first all right well uh apparently like much of the rest of the world uh i watched uh the netflix fantasy tv show shadow and bone uh last week mostly entirely just last week um Plowed through it, loved it a lot. I'm a uh, so this is a, a fantasy uh, TV show based on a fantasy. I think it's a YA series. Um, Martha, I know that you were a fan of this series before it became a TV show. This is my first exposure to it. Um, TLDR: It is uh, like 19th century Russia flavored fantasy. You've got some magic users called Grishas. You've got a big black area called the Rift where it's dangerous to go through. Uh, you've got a chosen girl, you've got a, uh, romantic interest, you've got a, uh, hot, sexy general guy who might try to show our hero the true extent of her powers or might actually be a villain. Uh, seeing as he's called the Darkling and wields shadow magic, you can take a guess which one it is. (laughs) Um, but no, I, I thought the show was very fun and very good. There were some parts that I didn't, I, I was not a big fan of, um, her love interest, uh, Mal, but I loved, uh, I love the costumes, the set decoration, the 19th century Russia aspects of it. Um, I also really love, there's a, our, our sort of second set of heroes are a group of, uh, criminals, like three criminals. Um, and every time they were, they were not on screen, I was just asking, but where are my criminal friends planning their next heist? Uh, cause they were a lot of fun. Uh, so I have I have only watched about half of the first episode of the series so far. Mm. Um, it has become my gym show. So it is the mm. show that I am using as my uh, carrot to make myself go to the gym now you that can... I am fully vaccinated and able to go to the gym. I, too, have started going back to the gym. Yes. Yay. Uh, so here is my anticipated issue with the show, which you have pretty much just highlighted. Um, I liked the Shadow and Bone books fine. Uh, Six of Crows, which is the duology that Kaz and Inej and Jesper are from, is miles better. Mm-hmm. And also, little wild. This is a, a a change that is kind of wild to me. Uh, in the book version of these, that story happens hundreds of years after the Alina. Um, oh. Arkaz story. That's wild because no, like, I mean, this isn't a real spoiler for the show for you, but like they inter- happening simultaneously, right? Not only that, but they interweave the narratives. So like 
you know, by, by the last couple episodes, everyone is is hanging out, you know, in the same space at the same time. Yes, that's um, very strange to me. That's that's wild. I, uh, uh, Marin had told me that it was like two books mushed together to bring those characters in, but I had no idea that it was like yeah, Alina entirely is like, distinct. Alina is like a mythical figure in Six of Crows. Interesting. Huh. So I kind of have to get over how I feel about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and also like Kaz and Inej and Jesper are and their whole crew. It it I love a fantasy heist. Yes. Um, there, there are so many good fantasy heist sequences going on in this. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to and I, I am a person for whom adaptations are not a dirty word. I am very much of the opinion that two different interpretations of the same story can coexist. Um, I am looking forward to uh, really getting into this show and seeing how I feel about it as its own work. Mm -hmm. I know that Leigh Bardugo, the author, was um, pretty heavily involved in the production of this, which I think is a good sign. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to watching more of it. Nice. Well, yeah, what uh, we already know what is stuck in your head, but why don't you explain? What does it mean to be a Pokemon master and also photographer? Listen, 20 years ago. Don't say that. When I was playing, uh, it's probably, oh, that's, honestly, It's, it's probably more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I was very heavily into my N64, my sister and I were obsessed with Pokemon Snap. Ever since the Switch was released, oh, which, if anybody is not familiar, is a game where instead of catching Pokemon, you are carted through different levels and are attempting to take photographs of, of Pokemon. Um, you are on a car on a track, so you don't get to, you have very limited um, mobility and perspective, and a lot of the trick of the game is timing is getting your timing right so that you can take photos before you have lost the opportunity uh, to take these wildlife pictures. Ever since the Switch was released, I have been crying <laughs> for a Pokemon Snap version for the Switch. I, not only because I am a sucker for a Pokemon game, but because the Switch is the perfect platform for it. I have known this since it was released. And finally... Nintendo descended from the heavens and said, here, Martha, we have finally, uh, we have come we, from on we, high. We have heard your pleas. About a month after the anniversary of Animal Crossing. <laughs> <laughs> a, a year. We have uh, about, well, a month after the year. Oh, a month after the year anniversary. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, we have once again come from on high to heal your pandemic woes uh the new pokemon snap is out and it's great and it I, is... I believe it is literally called new pokemon snap yes it is because yeah. that's all it needs to be right you're it like well new... you had me at pokemon snap so it is a new world there are more features to it uh the best new feature i think is the you level up in each location that you are taking photos in so like as you take photos, you earn points, which levels you up, and you have a different level for each location. And as your level gets higher, um, the level, what happens in them and the Pokemon that you see in them change. Oh, so nice. The idea is that like the more frequently you're there, the more comfortable the Pokemon get around you, the better opportunities you have, like the more specialized or um, like high scoring photo opportunities you have mm -hmm. uh you're still stuck in your car so you still can't get out and explore you are trapped on a on a track but the levels now also include a scan feature which lets you find hidden pokemon and also sometimes branching routes in the hmm. uh in the world so, so, the so you thing, can pick if you go left or right at certain locations exactly yeah. and you'll see different things so the whole thing just feels way more um what is the opposite of stagnant dynamic yes thank you hey, Words are hard. <laughs> um yeah the whole thing feels more dynamic um 
you get to you get to see more of the personalities of the Pokemon. Uh, there are challenges that you can complete to help you earn points. So like the your professor player character or NPCs will ask you to capture certain moments, and when you do, like you can you earn more points, which helps you level up. You know, so on and so forth until forever. Yeah. Um, there are also like day and night versions of each level, which oh. is very exciting for is it, me. Is it real time? No, that's you good. can. <laughs> yeah. When you pick a when you pick a level, you tell it if you want to do the day or the night version. As much as I enjoy things like Animal Crossing, where like the time in the game is the same as the time in real life, which I guess is true with like out. Pokemon Sword and out. all the rest of it. Yeah, like it stresses me mm. out. It's like, I don't know. I play video games at seven in the morning or seven at night and not any time in between uh, except yeah. for on weekends. So like, sorry, daytime. I only mm-hmm. see nighttime. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's great. I am obsessed with it. I stopped everything that I was doing. All I did this weekend was I had one giant 700 page fantasy book that I was reading and I alternated between that and playing Pokemon Snap. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. I've been uh, hemming and hawing on, on getting this new Pokemon Snap. I, you know, as any right thinking uh 30 plus year old i played my fair share of pokemon snap back in the day but um i wasn't as into it as you were uh mostly because i didn't have an n64 so it'd be like i'd be over at someone's house i'd play some and then it's like cool you want to play some smash bros or something uh (laughs) like something co-op um or you know competitive whatever two players um and then when I saw the new Pokemon snap, I'm like, yeah, this looks like it would probably be fun, but I didn't have that all-consuming need to, like, get it immediately. I pre-ordered this game, like, four months ago. <laughs> it uh, appeared well, on my Switch dashboard, like, ten days before the actual game release. Oh, you were teased. Yes, so every day I would check and see, is Nintendo going to let me play this game early? And every day my husband would laugh at me, because he was like, no, they're not. And I right. said, but I have to check. <laughs> Uh, uh, I I do know that as soon as I saw that this was uh, was stuck in your head, I'm like, uh, so I'm definitely gonna buy this over the weekend, aren't I? I love it so much. It's so good. Uh, so we are gonna take a real quick recess, and when we come back, we are going to dig into using uh, archival footage and historical fact into in your fictionalized narrative, which is a real clunker of a title that I am <laughs> workshopping. And we are back. Uh, so this was a really interesting... Well, 2020 was a really interesting year for movies for a lot of reasons. Uh, and one of which is that we got a couple of historical dramas um, that were... And a couple of documentaries, actually, which we will not be talking about in depth today, but I thought was worth mentioning, um, that all are about events that happen around the same time. Um, the films that we are going to be talking about today are The Trial of the Chicago 7 and Judas and the Black Messiah. I also want to give a real quick shout out to the documentary Crip Camp, which is about um, the development of the ADA and uh, the story of a sit-in that happened in San Francisco. Um, I say San Francisco, I should make sure that that is the Bay, correct. The Bay Area? California? Um, I'll I'll just make it a wider I've not seen Crip Camp, so I'll just make it a wider and wider net until it's correct. Somewhere in America. I mean it's somewhere in <laughs> Well, it it tells the story of Judith Human, who is a noted disabilities rights activist. Uh and it intersects with these movies because the Black Panther Party um did a lot of really great work supporting them during their sit-in protest um, in nineteen seventy-three. Um, 
1977, sorry, and it was San Francisco, uh, where a group of mostly disabled protesters sat outside the U.S. Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Joseph Califano's office for 28 days. Mm. Um, And like I said, the Black Panther Party was instrumental in keeping them fed, in providing, like, brought in mattresses, uh, brought them soap, and really, like, was one of the group's Uh, that did a lot of really good work to help take care of these protesters, many of whom had um, fairly serious mobility uh, disabilities. Um, Just it, it's a great documentary. You should watch it. It's on Hulu. Uh, It's not what we're going to talk about today, but I did think it was interesting that it, as well as these other two movies all kind of came out and coalesced in the same year. Well, and and similarly, speaking of movies that we're not talking about, uh, but which also fit this bill, uh, Defive Bloods also made uh, quite a lot of use of archival footage of Vietnam. Uh, Granted, that was a movie that straddled between, um, you know, a, a time during the Vietnam War and then like the modern era looking back on what that caused. But like Vietnam is definitely all tied up in the trial of the Chicago seven and Judas and the black Messiah. So we sort of had a whirlwind of like the sixties and early seventies. Um, and like that, that, that time of revolution. And we will be getting into why that and why now I'm sure. Um, but first, I am going to go ahead and introduce our first movie, uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, uh, starring Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden, Alex Sharp as Rennie Davis, Sasha Baron Sasha Cohen as Abby Hoffman, Jeremy Strong as Jerry Rubin, John Carroll Lynch as David Dellinger, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II as Bobby Seale, Mark Rylance as William Kunstler, oh, Joseph, so Gordon, yes, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Richard Schultz. Ben Shankman as Leonard Wineglass, J.K. McKenzie as Thomas Ferran, and the reason I have read so many of these names was to get to Frank Langella as <laughs> Judge Julius Hoffman. Also amazing. Trial of the Chicago Seven is the story of eight, uh, and then seven, eight, and then ultimately seven protesters uh, who participated in the um, uprising and riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, The goal of the trial was to indict these seven protesters on charges of um, conspiracy uh, to take away um, attention from the fact that these riots were started by the Chicago police. (laughs) Yep. Um, So you it is called the trial of the Chicago seven because Bobby Seale, um, who we all know as um the co-founder of the black panther party um was initially brought in with this group eventually was able to um adequately show that he had no connection i mean the big farce of this all is that none of these men had communicated with each other before like about the protest well, the, before the protests. The big farce of it all was that like they're on conspiracy to like commit violence across state lines, and none right. of them were were going to Chicago to commit violence. Like right. the, the the big farce of it all is that this is a political <laughs> trial, and that yes. they are on on trial for their beliefs and not for any actions that they might have participated in. And as you said, uh, the uh, Chicago Police Department had a good old fashioned riot, cracked a lot of skulls. Uh, had a great time and uh, made the city, made the Democratic Party, and made America look real foolish in the process. Yes, thank you for phrasing that much better than I did. Um, but yeah, Bobby Seale was able to um, get a mistrial on his behalf declared, um, separate himself, and then get his own representation. Um, I loved this movie. <laughs> Um, so that that is, that is stronger than I expected. I know I truly did. I found this to be a deeply entertaining watch. Um, I want to make a note about judge Julius Hoffman here. Uh, my father is a lawyer and has been practicing law in Chicago for between 30 and 40 years and has appeared in front of judge Hoffman before. Hmm. Um, 
According to my father, my father also loved this movie. Um, according to my father, Judge Hoffman was even more evil, petty, and vindictive than he was portrayed as in this movie, which is a feat considering how he is portrayed in this movie. Yeah, and that's also not surprising. It's one of those cases where it's like, well, I know this is what happened, but we can't portray it like that because no audience would believe that. So I don't know if you got this as into it as I did, but I actually read some of the transcripts from the court. Oh, I, uh, I did not. <laughs> well, and Sorkin's dialogue is better because it's written and nobody and, actually and, talks like Aaron Sorkin. Right, and I'm like, because it's Aaron Sorkin, so of course his dialogue is like... But the spirit, I mean, he... The spirit of, and kind of the absurdity of the testimony and the... um examinations is all there it's mm -hmm. all there <laughs> so and specifically the use of archival footage in this movie um they use footage of the riot that is the kind of inciting incident for the trial um they use sequences of it the the way that the movie is cut is it, the bulk of the action takes place during the trial and they occasionally do flashbacks to the events that they're talking about. And once they start um, discussing the demonstration and the riot, um, Sorkin and his film editor start intercutting in actual footage of the riot sequence um, into the flashbacks of the movie. Which I, I thought that the editing of the movie was really interesting and not like anything I'd seen from Sorkin before. I mean, like, I honestly, I don't know all that much that he's directed, but like, I, I think of Sorkin and I think of like, you know, Sorkin courtroom drama, I think of A Few Good Men, very linear narrative. Um, whereas this is very much a, a non-linear narrative. As, as you say, we have the flashbacks and then we have the flashbacks plus the archival footage. Um, yeah, it, it made interesting pacing. It's, it is also interesting to note that there are no photographs or video of the actual trial because sure. they did not allow any cameras or media people in the courtroom while it was happening. One other reason why it's like obviously just a political kangaroo court. So I found out that there have been four different movies made about this trial Hmm. Um, and one of them is animated. Interesting. Yes, it is based on because what what people did do is um, they drew scenes from um, from the courtroom. Sure. So um, I, I have an article from the New York Times that talks about it's part review and just partially just talking about the context of the adaptations of this event and the. Um, to do uh, a movie called Chicago 10. Oh, I've heard of that. Is animated and is based on the art style. Well, it's rotoscoped or animated to look like it's rotoscoped, like Waking Life or a Scanner Darkly. Mm -hmm. um, but the animation is meant to mimic the style of like the... the courtroom sketch artist. Yes. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. That movie came out, like, in the past decade, right? Um... Maybe, like, 15 years. 2008. Cool. Cool. Um, when, as you're talking about other, uh, interpretations of this event, uh, this also is the, uh, the impetus for the Crosby, Sills, and Nash song Chicago, which begins, uh, though your brother's bound and gagged and they've chained him to a chair, won't you please come to Chicago, uh, which is... Which is what happened Bobby to Bobby Seale. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, the other reason that my dad loves this movie is that in 1968, my father was 13 and his father caught him trying to hitchhike into Chicago to go protest at the Democratic National <laughs> Convention. <laughs> Excellent. Yes. <laughs> so it was a, a historical event that he felt that was very near and dear to his heart. Mm -hmm. um, so Pete, <laughs> I have talked a lot. What are your feelings both about this movie and about how... Um, how Sorkin is using the historical footage as I, I feel like it is an emphasis, like he's using it as kind of um, like an underline. So I, uh, to, to pull back from that first, 
Um, I like this movie more than I thought I would. I sort of had to not psych myself up to watch it, but when it first came out last summer and was getting all the buzz, I was kind of like, I I don't know if I like care enough to watch this. Um, I like Sorkin, but he can be a little, uh, you know, like he can be a little Aaron Sorkin-y when he has a, I was gonna a say, particular uh, bone I like to pick. This, I liked this despite it being yeah. an Aaron Sorkin joint. Yeah, um, I've also watched my fair share of like, I don't know how to describe this, but, like, liberal agitprop using lefty, like, guises. And this, in some, like, uh, uh, Eddie Redmayne as Tom Hayden, A, was very good. But B was exactly the kind of character whom I've seen in other, like, uh, Hollywood movies depicting uh lefty protest events with a sympathetic but rather tone deaf ear thinking of things um i i haven't seen stonewall but sort of like that uh, i have seen bad on seattle sort of like that um the movies are not like those movies are not good <laughs> so uh i was a little bit worried that this would sort of fall in that same bucket um but uh sasha Cohen was incredible as abby hoffman mark rylance was truly amazing as their defense attorney for uh, everyone but Bobby Seal. Um, and as you said, Fla Frank Langella was, uh, you know, excellent every, as well. Yeah. Every time he opened his mouth, I wanted to put my fist through my TV. <laughs> um, my, my biggest historical critique, and like, I absolutely understand why Sorkin did this, but um, uh, Richard Schultz, the assistant federal prosecutor played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, was not a conflicted <laughs> kind of guy he was like he was a rabid let's let's put these hippies in jail uh kind of guy so and like aaron, I, aaron sorkin made a uh a villain into a a sympathetic kind a of sympathetic. audience insert character who's conflicted about what he believes in it's shocking i know well <laughs> truly because mark rylance is right there like I don't think we needed the alternate perspective of I, I think I think Gordon Lovett was there as the alternate perspective to to show that like, man, everyone in the courtroom could tell what a farce this was. And that wasn't the case. Like the prosecutors were like, throw those hippies in jail. They caused a they caused a riot, you know, they came in here causing trouble with their long hair and their dope. Uh and you know, it's it, it's much more in the tone of 21st century America. For it to be like everyone is kind of in on how bad this is. Um, and that was just not the case then. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, y'all should have done your homework. So mild spoiler. Michael oh, Keaton yeah. shows up in this movie at the end. I was I did not know he was in this movie. So when he showed I'm up sorry, on who screen, does? Michael Keaton. Oh, yeah, he yeah. was great. Yeah, he plays the former attorney general. Uh, I did not know he was in it. So when they go to his house and interview him, I'm like, Michael Keaton's in this movie. Oh, my God. That was, yeah, that was the best. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, so my, my thoughts on this were, was I, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I definitely had some, had fun. I had misgivings. Um, but, like, for a major Hollywood film directed by a major Hollywood uh, writer and director, um, you know, getting pushed for Oscar buzz, all the rest of it, uh, I thought it did a very good job. Um and I thought it was way more sympathetic to the, uh, like, sympathetic to far-left causes that 10 years ago I don't think would have been, like, they would have portrayed the defendants as being sympathetic, because it's obviously, like, a political trial, but they might not have been as um, sympathetic to, you know, Abby Hoffman specifically, or, like, you know the the black panthers as an organization um in a way that this was more sympathetic um which was nice in terms of how it was using um documentary footage and and you know actual primary source footage watching this movie with that as the lens the entire opening like 5 minutes which is setting the scene of what all went down and what all like why there's a trial in the first place was just a montage of documentary footage and set like again it was edited in a very propulsive and interesting way i thought it was highly effective um and not what i expected out of sorkin at all uh 
But that so overshadowed the use of it later in my mind that I'm like, yeah, he's using it as very effective set dressing to sort of, like, almost like a uh, um, Ken Burns Vietnam War style of a very, like, rapid-fire editing, intense music, sort of getting you into a mindset that will then allow you to inhabit this film world. Like, really trying to get you into the mindset of... Um, you know, people in 1968. Do we think that is a respectful usage of this archival footage? I'm going to back up. So I always feel like the risk to incorporating real life material into a fictional narrative is the perception or the feeling that you are um, exploiting it in some way. Um, <laughs> that you are using well that you are using the the event that that you are commoditizing yeah i history. i i laughed because uh we did not assign forest gump and i think you said off air that you'd never seen forest gump i have never seen forest gump okay that's wild to me that you just somehow got through like 12 years of public school without ever having forest gump be put on um don't know what to tell you yeah uh, but but i bring all this up because uh, Zemeckis is a big tech guy, but Forrest Gump is, like, not really a tech-heavy movie, you don't think, until you realize that, like, the big, the big like, CGI special effects in that movie are that they digitally inserted Tom Hanks' as Forrest Gump into a bunch of archival footage. So, like, he meets LBJ, or, like, he meets, like, five different presidents, because uh, why not? And, like, you have CGI'd Tom Hanks shaking hands with Lyndon Johnson from some archival footage and now it looks horrible at the time it was like cutting edge and that is i think what you're talking about of like kind of disrespectful use of it um this i i like i think this works a lot better in this and i i did not think it was um uh disrespectful or just cashing in on it or um you know however else you want to define it because uh, i thought it was being used to very quickly bring the audience up to speed both in terms of what's going on in the world at the time and also getting you in the mindset of the people of the time um and also obviously obviously netflix and and uh you know sorkin and whatnot could not have planned this but this happened to come out over the like during a summer of unrest in our own time you know um mm -hmm. and i think that that was very sort of helpful accidentally to sort of like easily w watch the news reports from 68 and instantly compare them to the news reports from uh june or july of 2020 um just in terms of like tone and and what they're showing and uh, uh police rioting um etc it did end up feeling very um like familiar <laughs> yeah and i i i honestly i'm not sure i don't know how this would have landed in a different world you know like if this had just come out on netflix in a non-pandemic non uh social justice unrest like year i kind of don't know if it would have had the same resonance uh, like it's, it's still a well-made movie obviously but there's something there's something to this movie and Juice and the Black Messiah as well, coming out when it did that I think hit harder in a way that nobody could have anticipated. Absolutely. Although well, that being that being said, I know that Sor sorry, I know that Sorkin did make this in response to like Ferguson. Um mm -hmm. so it does says a lot about America that, you know, Sorkin made this in response to the last time there was a police riot. Uh and it happened to come out during a, another summer of police riots. So Well. Everything is always cyclical. Yeah. Um, speaking of police behaving badly, would you like to intro our next movie? I would. Um, so uh, I picked Judas and the Black Messiah, a 2021 uh, film about uh, Fred Hampton, played by uh, Daniel Kaluuya, who has uh, just recently won the Oscar for this role. Um he is the chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party in the late 1960s. 
Um, and he is the Black Messiah of the title. Uh, and then there is William O'Neill, his bodyguard, uh, sort of bag man, and an FBI informant, played by Lakeith Stanfield, who also should have won an Oscar for this, except for they were both up in the same category. Um, I disagree, but we'll get to that in a bit. All right, fair enough. Uh, Jesse Plemons plays the FBI handler. Uh, Dominique Fishback plays uh, Fred Hampton's um, romantic interest. Uh, and uh, Martin Sheen is in it. I think he's Hoover, right? Yeah, Martin yes. Sheen is Herbert Hoover. Um, we're just kind of looking at the the a couple years in the life of Fred Hampton and the Black Panther Party and uh, really kind of focusing on it through the lens of William O'Neill, like Keith Stanfield, um, up until the uh, Chicago Police Department execute Fred Hampton in cold blood, uh, which is what happened. Don't think anyone's going to fight you on that. Nope. Because um, this was a time when not just the Chicago police, but also definitely the Chicago police, uh, were not good. Kind of <laughs> like now. <laughs> going to say. Uh, here's my problem with this movie. Mm -hmm. I would like to preface this by saying that I think that Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are both tremendous talents. I am not disputing that. I think that Lakeith Stanfield was the incorrect choice for this role. Hmm. Um, so Bill O'Neill at the time of the events of this movie was 19. And I think that that is, and Fred Hampton was 22. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so important to understanding why this happened, that having Lakeith Stanfield grown man Lakeith Stanfield do his best impression of a like shrinking nervous unsure 19 year old does the movie a disservice hmm. like you're you're okay with Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton even though he's I, older just because he's like he's that magnetic presence I'm I'm I still think they cast you old because I think that also, seeing Fred Hampton more true to his age would also have helped illustrate how completely unhinged the FBI was being about this whole situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I that... think you I so and I, I also want to say that I say this without trying to excuse what Bill O'Neill did, but also a 19 year old being told this is how you this is how you don't ruin your life and stay out of prison is different is than it, like a 30 year old being told is that. it yes yeah yeah um i also felt and i guess i i would love to know what you think about this because i guess this was not a common interpretation of the movie i felt very much like the movie was trying to show that um that tension with O'Neill, like the fact that the FBI was also manipulating him and that, you know, pitting him against Fred Hampton in this way. Um, I, I don't think the movie was trying to apologize for Bill O'Neill, but I definitely think it was trying to illustrate that he is also being used by law enforcement in a really gross and manipulative way. And I think that that message would have been clear like i think it would have been more it, it, it would it would have felt grosser for jesse plemons to be using him in the way he was if he was like a 19 year old kid yes because that's what it was um so while i while i completely agree that daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith stanfield are both incredible and they're both doing a great job in this movie i think that they were the incorrect choices for the movie um that was made yeah the, uh, william o'neill is a very fascinating and interesting person um he was interviewed in 1989 for a pbs documentary about all this and basically was like yeah i i'm cool with having been an infor in informant i'm glad i did it whatever uh, i have no well, allegiance to the panthers and then he he killed, killed himself, himself before uh, the documentary aired. Yeah. So like there's a lot going on there. <laughs> yes. And yeah. that's the kind of 
I guess, nuance to the story. And again, I say all of this without excusing what he did because it was inexcusable. Right. I think he thought so too. Right. Um, so, I, it, I, I will say you're, you're right about the, the aging up and how that impacts how they are perceived. That being said, Stanfield brings an absolute deep soulfulness to it, which I think is like not to say that some other actor wouldn't have brought that either, you know, but like, but he is doing a lot to sort of show that internal conflict in a role that he really has to just convey that through like his eyes. Oh, yeah. Um, no, his performance is great. Yeah. I just think it was the wrong performance. Because he is, he is doing his best impression of a nervous 19-year-old kid. <laughs> like, the way that he holds himself, the way that he holds his head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then I cannot help but be reminded that this is Lakeith Stanfield. <laughs> that's fair. Uh, but I, I think that, like, that's just one of those things where it's like, I mean, Lakeith Stanfield himself is only 29, which on the one hand is a whole 10 years, and that's a... Uh, a a a long like a large 10 years you know like that that is a wide there, there's a wider 10 years between 19 and 29 than there's between 29 and 39 um if that made sense i just think it's insane that you just told me that 10 years is not that much time well I'd like, like you know it's it's not like like he feels like 35 or something um but yeah uh so the usage of historical footage in this movie is very different. Um, it is mostly of Fred Hampton himself. Um, we get to see and hear Fred Hampton give speeches that we also then get to see Daniel Kaluuya make. Um, I think of the two performances, I prefer Kaluuya. Um, I think he has more of an opportunity to... I think his body acting does more for the performance than Lakeith Stanfield's. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. The I'm a revolutionary speech is like the linchpin of that entire movie. And that is sitting squarely on Kaluuya's shoulders. Yeah. I, I will say that these are like two of the best eye actors in the business. And they are both like, these are both roles where they get to eye act like to, to 1000% and they both bring their full a game to it. Um, I do think uh, I think Kaluuya edges out Stanfield by like a hair. I, I like what Stanfield was doing more than you did. Uh, but I, I do agree with you that I think Kaluuya like it. If he cannot make the role work, then the movie doesn't work. Yes. In a, in a way where if if Stanfield couldn't make his role work, the movie can still function. Because like because like we the audience have to be fully bought in to like we have to be on board with with Fred Hampton um like not necessarily agreeing with him and agreeing with all his decisions but we have to be like on his side um and and I think that's all on Kaluuya and I think he he nails it I have no arguments with that cool I'm, I'm also I'm like I don't know I'm predisposed to you know agree with a lot of his arguments so yeah sure of course I think he, <laughs> I, of course I'm instantly on his side when the movie opens uh so so there is that wrinkle um yeah this and and you know you were talking earlier about like respectful use of historical footage versus not uh I thought that this was I thought that the usage of historical footage in this was less effective than in Chicago 7, if only because I barely remember any historical footage in this at all. Whereas I can, like, I can easily point to multiple moments in Chicago 7 where they're doing those flashbacks, where they're, you know, the, the starting of the movie, all the rest of it. Um, this one, and it might just be that the performances for me uh, overwhelmed, like, like, just, like, so fully took me in that the moments where we did cut to historical footage i was just like not as like it didn't it didn't affect me as much um not to say that it wasn't respectfully used or you know use whatever word you want instead of respectfully um <laughs> but but it, it perhaps it, it wasn't 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it was not effectively used, which doesn't mean that it was bad, simply that it we probably could have cut it entirely and, you know, maybe would not have missed anything. I, I feel like it almost is mostly used to show us how good Kaluuya's performance is. And he is doing an excellent Chicago accent from, you know. Um, and also at the end when we get the the cut from um, O'Neill's interview. Yes. Because that... the, movie, the movie opens... <coughs> Excuse me. The movie opens with Lakeith Stanfield and it ends with actual Bill O'Neill. And, and I, I will say that the that ending interview, which was from the Eyes on the Prize documentary, uh, um, was great. Like that, it, 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 like we could cut all the rest of it, and I think it would be fine. But that particular ending moment is an excellent way to end that film. So I guess that's the one piece of historical footage that I'm like, yeah, actually, <laughs> that that was effectively used. That left a mark with me. Uh, I'm I'm all on board with that. The rest of it, I'm sort of like, was there historical footage in this movie? I don't remember it as much. So I have a question that has just now occurred to me, and you may not have an answer, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, we be- that that scene, like I just said, begins with Lakeith Stanfield, and then we pick up at the end with actual Bill O'Neill. Um. Why? Is it just because we're about to watch Lakeith Stanfield in the movie? Like, why do we think we they made that switch? Or is this a stupid question? Hmm. It might be a stupid question. I it's I don't think it's a stupid question. On the spot. I'm not able to to come up with a good coherent <laughs> okay. uh, answer. Um, then, I, cut the, pa- pa- then cut the question. Well, I mean, so it's... so pa- like part of it might be that like it's the movie is called Judas and the Black Messiah, and obviously it's about Fred Hampton and ever like quote unquote everyone. Many people going into this movie know or have an idea of who Fred Hampton is, even if it's just the cursory like I don't know he's the leader of Black Panthers. He got murdered. Um, and very few people know who Bill O'Neill is. So I, I, I think that it's the combination of like, we're introducing the character who is arguably the main character of the movie. I, I think that he is the main character of the movie. Um, but uh, he's, he's the, he is of the two titular characters, the one most like random audience members have never heard of and don't know about. So that's why we're going to focus on, on introducing him and doubling down on the fact that he's a real person. So like we're, mm-hmm. we're going to introduce Lakeith Stanfield cause that's your actor, but we do want to sure. remind you that like, no, this was a real guy. Um, because you know, the story we're telling is a real story. So I do think that it is interesting that we are talking about this right after we did an episode that was all about Judas apologists. (laughs) Uh, Yes, indeed. And I don't know if this movie is a Judas uh, apologist. I think it's I I, I think in in your in the words of your favorite Brooklyn Nine-Nine quote, the thesis of this movie is cool motive, still murder, still murder, Um, where it's like it's very sympathetic to him, but it's also like. You know, you you killed Fred Hampton. Yeah, I just I just very much got the feeling that the movie was also. I mean, not this is this is not a groundbreaking observation, but the movie is also about how the police killed Fred Hampton Mm -hmm. in like many different ways. Like Jesse Plemons, I think, is the villain of this movie. Jesse, Um, I Jesse Plemons is. I think he's such an interesting character because he is white complicity. Uh, he doesn't want to be doing this necessarily, but he's got a nice job. He generally thinks that Fred Hampton's up to no good. If it was up to him, he wouldn't have him murdered. But his higher-ups say, well, we got to do this thing. And so, you know, he'll go along with it. Um, and I, I think that's such an excellent role where he's not he's not the j edgar hoover like raving madman chomping at the bit i was gonna Uh, say j edgar hoover is unhinged in this movie yeah and also like real life um 
But like he's so like he's not that. And I think it's so useful to have Jesse Plemons be a absolutely like recognizable person to be playing the, you know, the the tempting devil kind of character. Yeah, I I really hope that white people watched this movie and understood that doing nothing or you know, doing what you are ordered to is can be contributing to <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I, I uh-huh. and I, that's that's why I I love so much his casting, his acting in it. Um, where it's very much like he's he's just kind of the cog in the machine, doing what he's told to do, and that machine is a bad machine. And watching that movie, you like especially white audiences should be identifying not identifying with him but identifying him and seeing parts of themselves in that and and sort of grappling with that tension um especially because he gets to live like he he has a pretty nice life you know he's always meeting uh, Lakeith Sanfield in in nice bars where Lakeith Sanfield definitely does not belong uh you know like and it's very clear he's the only black man in these establishments um he's treated you know respectfully but always as a guest and not a uh someone who belongs here mm-hmm. let's talk about let's talk about a big picture question mm-hmm. uh you mentioned that Aaron Sorkin had decided had made Chicago trial of the Chicago seven in response to the Ferguson police riots. Why or rather, how do we think this became the moment for this kind of movie? Like, is this, is this too obvious of a question? Like it, it's so interesting to me that all of these, all of these stories are being told in the same year. Um, do we think that it's just reactionary to, to what's happening is there something culturally that is this is stupid i'm sorry <laughs> well we i mean are part... all, we are all revolutionaries p- part part of it of course I, i'm i'm gonna answer i think the yeah, question you're you're looking at asking I mean, clearly like, clearly this revolutionary spirit is resonating with all of us because we have stuff to revolt against yeah i and i i think things like you know things like a juice and the black messiah like a biopic about fred hampton had been kicking around for a while and um uh shaka king the uh director and uh screenwriter had been working on this for quite some time i think um but i think that the last couple years going back to ferguson which really sort of you know, sparked the beginning of the black lives matter movement but also broadcast into white well-educated suburban homes um that the police love to crack heads of black and brown people um i think that helped catalyze the production of a lot of these or at least you know get movies like this into pitch meetings that otherwise they wouldn't have been like uh, so sorry two two different directions here one someone like shaka king who's trying to write judas and the black messiah the past couple years, uh, starting with Ferguson and then the election of Trump, gets like, you know, Hollywood wants to be seen as as woke and with the times and all the rest of it. And so we'll hear pitch meetings about this and we'll we'll greenlight movies like this in a way that I don't think they would have 10 years ago. Um, on the flip side, Trial of the Chicago 7, that's being created by a an old hand in Hollywood like Aaron Sorkin is, you know, has deep roots. So what's changed there is that something like like Ferguson and and Trump is going to somewhat radicalize Sorkin. Uh, He could make whatever he wants to make. Uh, That's not the problem. The problem is, what does he want to make? And so he looks back to his own youth. um, And here I'm raw psychoanalyzing and off on a very, you know, uh, thin branch. But like he looks back to his own youth at the 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 radicalism of the day then. Um, feels resonant strains to what's happening now, and so chooses this, uh, this movie. Thank you for spinning gold out of my utter foot and mouth straw. Well, not there. not just gold, uh, total psychobabble gold that might not have any basis in reality. No, I love uh, it, but it seems reasonable. Um, so regardless of what my feelings are about Judas and the Black Messiah, and I, I should say it's a 
I I in, I'm glad that I watched it. I think it's got some tower some powerhouse performances. Um, I truly wish I, I had some problems with um, how Deborah's character is treated. Uh, mm-hmm. Dominique Fishback playing Deborah Johnson, who is Fred Hampton's girlfriend and ultimately the mother of his child. She gets such an interesting introduction. And then I feel like at some once we find out that she's pregnant, the movie relegates her pretty hard to just, quote unquote, the mother of Fred Hampton's child. Yeah, I, which I, I don't disagree with that. Did not feel did justice to, I think, how interesting and powerful of a person she was is in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so glad this movie exists. I hope they make a hundred more. Um, I would love for um, biopics and historical uh, dramas about people of color to become just as um, like regular. Yeah. What's just as not ambiguous. Um, Oh, um, uh, complex? No, just as commonplace. That's hmm. not the word I'm looking for, but it's what what the word I'm looking for means. Just as commonplace. De, de rigueur? Yeah, just as, like, regular. I want them to become just as prioritized as fiction, as historical dramas about white people. Mm-hmm, right. Um, because... The, our, our history is not wholly white and I think it is important for white people like me who for who who did not know a lot of this information about the Black Panthers and about Fred Hampton this is the way that you reach the most people is through just like commonplace popular culture yeah um, the Oscars are nonsense but also because this movie was nominated for an Oscar millions of film snobs made sure that they watched it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. So this this might be beyond our purview for this episode, but um, there are many critiques with biopics of white people, including the, like, you know, any biopic is going to fudge with reality because you're telling a story first and, you know, everything else kind of has to become secondary. But you're always doing a balancing act between what was real what feels real but isn't and then what's just pure dramatization because you know we need something in the third act to make this interesting um and i i worry that like so so something like judas and the black messiah now i thought did a very good job at capturing what felt real and I, and I know that Chaka King uh, spent a lot of time with um, Fred Hampton Jr. and um, uh, 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 Deborah Johnson, because um, they're both still alive, uh, and, like, really made sure that he got their blessing to make this film and, like, that they signed off on the script, uh, which I think is critical. Looking at Trial of Chicago 7, there's a lot more, like we're fudging things, we're, you know, we're making things up, but it's all white people anyway, other than Bobby Seal. So it's kind of like, yeah, that's okay. Um, so I, I guess I'm just trying to get at, like, the weight, since biopics about people of color are not as common still as biopics about white people, it's that classic thing of, like, one biopic must bear the burden of all biopics, you know, right? Like, so I'm, uh, it's, this is an absolute train wreck of a thought or a sentence, but it's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to get the, at the idea of like, so many of the interesting biopics of people of color coming out happen to be ones about people of color who are being uh, murdered by the police. Um, and that's because for a lot of our history, the leaders of, of especially black communities uh, have yeah, been murdered, by, murdered the by the police, uh, which is not good. Um, but also it's like, at what point do you stop telling those stories or, or join those stories with other stories of people who didn't get murdered by the police and like, who didn't, uh, who, who were successful, uh, and, and all the rest of it, um, to sort of try to balance the scale so that every biopic of a person of color isn't just another story of, um, you know, police brutality or what have you. Well, it's the same criticism that um, 
you know, most of the stories about black people that that we get right now are stories about black pain. Mm -hmm. They're stories of slavery or police brutality. Um, And I... And, like, like, these are stories that need to be told, obviously. And we are we are venturing a little bit into territory that we're not super qualified to discuss because mm-hmm. you and I are two white people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that it's it's a more complex issue than just the we should have more stories than just slavery stories because then you start to get into questions about like who is dictating the kinds of stories that black creators get to tell and all of that. Um, I just want there to be more. I want there to be more stuff. Um, It's the same thing about stories about queer people or stories about women. Um, Well, not, not the same thing, but the, the point is that the more that there are, the less, one has to worry about being the definitive narrative. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you for uh, now. It's your turn to like say what <laughs> I was trying to convey in twenty thousand words in like two sentences. Like when yeah, when, just... when when there are a lot of movies uh, or works uh, by and about and starring people of color, then there can be a, a wide variety in the stories that they're telling. Yes, and we don't have to be sad or disappointed if one of those isn't the movie we want it to be because in an ideal world, we will have many to pick from. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That feels like a, an appropriate ending note to hit on our way out. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Um, you can find us. Do, do I really just go straight into the social media plugs? Is there no like? Yeah, you go right in the. I mean, shoot, I'm acting like a freaking amateur here. <laughs> um, so we are gonna leave our discussion there. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. If you are itching for more of our show, you can find our archive on SoundCloud. Uh, you can also follow us on various social media outlets. Um under the handle at DYDYH podcast. Uh, that is true for Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Although I honestly could not tell you the last time I updated our Instagram. I'm a bad social media producer. Um, also this podcast isn't my job. So sorry. <laughs> uh, you can follow me individually and social media at all the places, uh, at magical Martha, including, uh, my newsletter that I write whenever I feel like it which is at tinyletter.com forward slash magical Martha. My most recent issue is uh, all of the things that I forgot to talk about on our last episode about (laughs) uh, New Testament stories. Uh, Pete, where can people follow you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Um yeah, that's 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 about it. All right. And if you are looking for more of that good, good podcast content, uh, I have another show which updates on the same media feed on alternate Wednesdays. Uh, that is my show, Love Ya, where I watch and analyze either a um, teen movie or adult rom-com with Pete's wife, Marin. Um, I believe our last episode we watched when we first met. And our next episode is, I don't remember the name of the movie, but it is a teen dance movie. So that's going to be exciting. (laughs) Uh, Pete, what are we doing for our next episode? Uh, Next episode, inspired by a uh, tweet of yours, Martha, um, where you were watching a bunch of Fast and Furious movies and wondering how we can make that into a podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking (laughs) about family and especially found family. Uh, which is literally the entire, well, that and Cars Go Fast is the entire, like, script of every Fast and Furious movie. Um, uh, so, Martha, which which Fast and Furious are we watching? Uh, so, I would, it is my dearest wish that everyone watch all of them, because they are works of art. 
Uh, but specifically, we will be talking about number seven, which... Um, Is that called Furious 7? I th- believe so. Mm-hmm. Yes, Furious 7. All right. And my homework is a couple episodes of the TV show Firefly. Uh, now, I'm pretty sure we've had Firefly on uh, this ep- on this show before as homework. Uh, the specific episodes are going to be Out of Gas and Heart of Gold. Um, recognizing that this is a bit of a but Joss Whedon situation, but uh, for all his problems, Joss Whedon does a very good job at found families as a trope. So uh, we're kind of uh, biting the bullet or the space bullet and uh, going with that. Uh, That is going to do it for us tonight. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in a couple of weeks. And until then, enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed.